housing really, the crux of it is, is do we want to provide people with human dignity? It, we cannot live in a society where we're okay with people being chronically homeless for decades. Uh, and so, you know, that, that for me is at the crux of it. But if I had to make a business case, <laughs> and if I had to put on that hat, you know, people are destabilized when they live on the street. People are more likely to be subject to crimes, more likely to be harmed. The homicide rate is staggering, and in particular for women on the street. So, you know, if we really want to ensure that people are well, if we really commit to that, then housing has to be first. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Of Council. I'm Sean Robichaud. In this episode, we interview Amy Slotek. Amy's legal path starts in Turkey. Working for an NGO fighting for human rights, she learned the value of principles that she takes with her today, including the importance of the rule of law and the fragility of it, and how we as Canadians often take these things for granted. Now, she works as staff lawyer for Legal Aid Ontario leading the project of Sound Times. Sound Times helps those with mental health, substance abuse, justice, housing, and much more. Located in Toronto at Parliament and Dundas, she provides a wide range of legal services to those who need it most. I think you'll really enjoy this episode with Amy and the perspective she offers in this episode of Of Council. For me, law wasn't something that I had always envisioned myself doing. I didn't, I didn't grow up knowing really any lawyers. And I, I, you know, I don't know many people who, who I went to high school with who, who became lawyers or really even who went on to university. I grew up in the East End of, of Toronto, but, uh, I was fortunate enough to, to go to McGill. I, uh, had always envisioned traveling the world and working in, you know, in faraway places. And I did my undergrad in international development studies. When I graduated, I, uh, ended up traveling in Europe and, uh, for love, <laughs> I will say I actually moved to Turkey and I ended up staying there for six years. And I, I had always been interested in human rights issues. I, I had always thought that I could see myself as an advocate and really working in the human rights field in Turkey, I realized that having a law degree and being a lawyer is really an essential, um, to be able to better advocate, to understand laws, to advocate for change. And it was really my experience in Turkey that solidified my desire to go back to law school. And I feel, you know, I feel very lucky that I had that experience because I think it shaped uh, how I see advocacy and how I see uh, the role of lawyers, not only in Canada, but around the world in terms of advocating for social change. When someone uses the phrase human rights, uh, how do you see that connotation different in Canada versus Turkey? at least at the time that you were there? Sure. Um, well, so I moved to Turkey at a time when it was relatively liberal, but since then, uh, the country certainly slipped back. Um, there's been erosion of, of freedom of expression, real attack on journalism, um, also attack on lawyers. Um, and so, for example, living in Turkey, I really got a firsthand experience of the fragility of the rule of law. And I think that in Canada, we don't recognize how fragile uh, the rule of law is, and I, 
I think that, um, you know, seeing some things that I saw in Turkey, for example, um, I worked in a, in an NGO and, uh, we shared, uh, we shared a space with, uh, uh, some lawyers who represent, uh, well, exiled leaders now, but people who represent, uh, Kurdish, uh, political parties. And they're, you know, it wasn't uncommon for their law chambers to be raided. And I, I had the experience of working with the human rights organization and people, you know, it wasn't uncommon for people to be picked up on Trump charges. And during my time there as well, someone on our board was assassinated at our front door. One day I came into work and, and he, he had just been killed and, and he was a prominent Armenian journalist. So my time there, uh, gave me a good vantage point, I think, in terms of understanding how fragile it is, uh, just the rule of law. I mean, we throw that term around a lot, but, we we aren't we don't recognize just how how easily the rule of law can be eroded. I think a lot of people perceive the rule of law collapsing immediately or abruptly by a dictator taking power through military. Um, but clearly, you know, maybe over time that's happened in Turkey. But it, it to me from afar it seems more gradual. Did you hear of any stories from people in Turkey saying how this degradation happened uh, to the rule of law? I mean, I think I think that. Certain segments of this of the society were certainly uh, attacked or, or you know had their rights violated, and I think that that's sort of a universal. And I think that's why now I'm interested in in the rights of individuals who are on the street, um, rights of marginalized populations, because I think that when their rights are eroded, I mean they're the ones who are normally attacked and and uh, targeted first. And so, in protecting the rights of the most marginalized, we're protecting the rights of all. So now with this uh, file. You go to law school and tell me um, about what your interests were at that time and who some of the greatest influences were um, professors or mentors or whoever they may be. So, you know, after spending my time in Turkey, I, I, I went to Windsor Law and I, you know, one of the things that I tried the most <laughs> to do was to stay off campus and to be entrenched in the clinical law program. I had, um, I had great, uh, opportunities to work with Professor Tanovich, David Tanovich, um, and worked on, on racial profiling issues and police complaint, uh, complaints issues with him. I, I spent a time at the clinical law, uh, law, um, program as well as working at the mediation clinic. And for me, you know, I had always, I'm, a, I'm an experiential learner. I just have to go and do it. And for me, that was the best way for me to learn. Uh, I, you know, I also worked under individuals, Reem Body, for example, and, and uh, kept up my keen interest in looking at, at and, you know, torture issues and uh, both, you know, in Canada, but uh, also abroad. And what happened after law school? Did you start your articles right away or was there? Yeah, so for me, it was it was a bit of a, a different trajectory, uh, I think, than most. I, I, you know, I had during law school, I went back to I went back to Turkey one summer and I, I spent the summer <laughs> traveling around and uh, interviewing LGBTQ refugees in safe houses around the country. Uh, the second summer, my partner had moved to Poland and I was lucky enough to find work with the Organization for Security uh, and Cooperation in Europe. I spent my second summer there working on anti-discrimination legislation, hate crimes issues, 
And so after law school, I went, I moved to Poland, uh, essentially to work with the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And I spent, you know, almost three years there, uh, doing that work before I came back and articled. Wow. So did you find the contrast between the Canadian system and, and the Polish system hard to navigate and shocking in many ways? Or Sure. So I was I was working in Poland, but I was also working in ex-Soviet countries. I worked in a, a lot of the Eastern European countries, including Poland. Um, very interesting work. Uh in terms of understanding, I think also how, you know, anti-discrimination legislation, if it's not written, uh, with a view of, of looking at the local context, I think you miss a lot. And, and in, I won't, you know, I won't say what countries that I'm talking about because I, I, you know, I reviewed those pieces of legislation under a confidential mandate, but, you know, I would refu- review anti-discrimination legislation that, that basically, you know, barred people from criticizing the state. So anti-discrimination legislation that ended up curbing freedom of expression and doing exactly the opposite of really what anti-discrimination legislation um, is to do. You know, from a, when you're looking at legislation as well, I think it's very interesting to look at local context. You know, we, we would review and then send back drafts of legislation to, to specific ministries of justice around Europe and, and, you know, I always sent those those pieces of legislation back and then wondered, well, who is going to activate this these rights? You know, if there's no civil society on the ground and if there's no one, if there's no lawyers to activate and use these laws, then for all, you know, for all purposes, they're just on the books and they don't mean anything to people on the ground. And so I think being there, thinking about the law, at, not just in terms of how, you know, how it's drafted and how it's written, but also just how it, in, you know, how average people can can activate can utilize laws in a way that that actually has meaning to their lives maybe i misheard you but Mm -hmm. i thought you said that the anti-discrimination laws were being used to discriminate so they weren't being used to discriminate well they were and i i I, you know so how does that happen so that how does that happen well of course reaching confidentiality confidentiality. notionally like how could that happen well, so for example, if you have a piece of legislation and it and it says, you know, you're not allowed to discriminate against the state. I mean, you know, not written in those specific words, but that's essentially what it's saying, right? Sure. Um, the integrity of nation, uh, you know, that that an individual would, you know, would be guilty of, of discrimination if they if they attack the national the national identity of a country. Those kind of the those kind of sort of clauses uh, could certainly be used against human rights defenders very easily uh, to to shut down activities and legitimate freedom of expression and dissent. Interesting. So through the very, you know, the, the, the I guess the um, appearance of the rule of law is, is the very mechanism that they're using. And I guess you could see that being wrapped up through anti-discrimination of particular political parties or particular um, dominant um, Christian uh, groups, for example. Um, uh, you know, I never thought of it that way. <laughs> but yeah, that's... Uh, so do you think now looking at sort of what we see in, in Canadian law and anti-discrimination laws as somewhat naive as to as you say, the fragility of where this could go if it's just tweaked a little bit more? Um, I think we have some pretty, I think we have fairly good legislation, but I think that, uh, you know, 
the individual's awareness and just how much meaning it has for people who are, who are, you know, experiencing discrimination is tied in with, with local context, access to lawyers, access to, you know, to tribunals. And, um, so I think for me, it was more just, all, I mean, I think we have good legislation in place. It's just how do you activate those rights? How do you make these tribunals and these, these forums accessible to people who are really the intended to be the key beneficiaries of anti-discrimination law. So let's talk about that because your work now at legal aid is largely helping marginalized group people, um, you know, facing poverty, mental health issues and trying to navigate these systems of power that enable or don't enable depending on the way it goes. And I read a piece, um, that you wrote in the Toronto star that was quite moving the story of Jim. Uh, and I'm sure that's not his real name, but can you, um, tell us that story and how, that affects you on the day-to-day as a typical person trying to navigate the system we have? Sure. Um, so every, once a week, I work at Old City Hall, and that's where the Provincial Offenses Court uh, holds set date court. And so not very many people know this, but, you know, there's a whole whole bunch of provincial and regulatory offenses that 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 really seek to regulate the behavior of homeless individuals on the street. This could be any, anything from public intoxication to panhandling to trespass. And we, you know, I have a colleague and I, and we work together to ensure that people get representation. People, you know, non-lawyers are shocked when I tell them that, you know, on second conviction, somebody can serve up to six months in jail for panhandling. Um, additionally, breaches of probation up to the, uh, under the Provincial Offenses Act can actually, you can get up to 30 days. And people find this shocking. Uh, that homeless people could spend time in jail for essentially asking for change or for essentially sleeping on the street. And just so I'm, I think I know the answer to this, but these would be prosecuted in POA courts. So I presume this is presided by a justice of the peace. That's correct. And oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes these people, these justices are not lawyers or uh, many now it's getting better. They're legally trained, et cetera. Um, but, you know, one thing I've noticed uh, as a criminal defense lawyer is the sentences for, as you say, panhandling on a second offense may be worse than a domestic violence for the third time on a spouse that resulted in injuries. Um, so, you know, I, I guess even for me, I'm having a hard time uh, appreciating that and even is accepting that. But does that actually happen? Do people really go to jail? So there are people who do go to jail and there are arrest provisions under the Provincial Offenses Act, too. So people are arrested on the street Um of course, the police can also just provide them with the summons to come to court, but people are also arrested, um, you know, under the act. So they will spend a night in jail. Uh, you know, they will have to go through the process of trying to, to get bail. I, another thing that I think that many people, when I talk to them about, find shocking is that the Provincial Offenses Act permits ex parte trials. And an ex parte trial essentially means that the defendant is not, pr- is not present. And, you know, when we talk about the rule of law, I saw a lot of uh, military tribunals and ex parte trials, uh, not only in Turkey, but in other countries where we, you know, w- where we think that, you know, there's really an absence of, of any sort of pretense of the rule of law. And yet we have this situation happening right here in Toronto across this province. And essentially, that means that the defendant can never, you know, test any of the evidence, the evidence is just accepted unquestioningly as being as being the truth. 
And it's almost certain that, that, you know, unless the, unless none of the witnesses show up, uh, they'll, you know, they'll be prosecuted and they will be convic- convicted. And then beyond the whole process in terms of the trial, then you have to question at sentencing who is speaking to the individual circumstances of the, of the, the, the accused or offender. No one. And so, you know, the justices of the peace are then metting out sentences without having ever met the individual who they're supposed to be uh, metting out that sentence to. So the question I think some would ask is, why aren't these people at their trials? Sure. Um, So, I mean, I think we could maybe, you know, talk a little bit now about the misperceptions that people have about what life on the street really means. Right. Uh, and, 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 you know... I have clients who are unwell on the street. I have clients who are trying to just merely survive. You know, it may be that that this individual's picked up. It may be that this person has legitimate reasons for not being in court. I mean, legitimate in terms of an excuse that you could put before a justice of the peace. It may be that they're involuntarily hospitalized. It may just simply be that their life is so dysregulated that they that they forgot that they that they don't that they lost their documents and. Living on the street, it's very difficult to hold on to any court papers. I mean, I don't know if you, if I'm sure you've represented homeless accused, but you'll know that, that they don't, you know, holding on to their disclosure, holding on to their, their summons, holding on to their court papers is very difficult. People get robbed all the time in the shelter system. People get robbed all the time on the street. And so that may just be one reason why they're not showing up to court. What is your, day-to-day like and if we could tie this into what your role is now with this project through legal aid um i you know we never really got into that but what are you doing in the court system what's the project about so you know when i think about my day-to-day i'm not sure how much uh how familiar it is to other lawyers experiences i mean my day-to-day is very hectic but i really wear two hats and essentially one hat, I run a project specifically representing uh, homeless accused at Provincial Offenses Court. That's at the at, at Old City Hall, as I mentioned. Uh, the other three, three to four days a week, depending on my week, I provide legal advice and representation to clients who are facing complex mental health issues and homelessness uh, in the community in Moss Park, and that's the east end of Toronto, uh, where there's really a high proportion of people living um, in shelters, on the street, living rough, and also facing uh, addictions and mental health issues. And so, you know, I walk in in the morning and it's a drop-in. So I walk in in the morning and people are coming off the street and they're having breakfast and I check in and I see who needs to see me and I have, you know, a sign-up sheet and my days are very hectic, you know. Um, there are days where I, I don't get to see everyone who needs to be seen and that's frustrating, but uh but I do feel that, you know, I do meaningful work. And I think that being in the community provides a really, really great access to people who who, who do require it. So you work directly for Legal Aid Ontario. Yeah. And, and this office that you have is a location located uh, at Parliament in Dundas. That's right. Yeah. So right in the heart of, you know, a very problematic area of Toronto, there's probably a lot of people. Are these people that you become familiar with or is there always someone new coming yeah so um you know there are there are people i've been there for three years now so i i know a lot of the regulars i know a lot of of individuals but uh who have been there and who are regulars i i am 
you know, I am noticing though that the homeless population is increasing. We're seeing a lot of people from rural areas um, moving to the city. Uh, a lot of Indigenous uh, folks moving into the downtown core. And so I'm just, you know, I'm really seeing uh, the effect of the homeless crisis right before my eyes. And I think, you know, there are, it, it is growing and it is very concerning. What are some of the people that would come into your office for the first time that might surprise people to think, well, I, I can't, can't imagine that this person is now, you know, quote unquote homeless. I mean, have, have you had people come in where, you know, just a week before everything was okay or... And what are some of the more shocking stories you've you've come to experience? Oh, without of course, without of course, yeah. yeah. So I do do eviction prevention. So when people do get housed, I try to keep them housed. Um, I am, you know, I I do have concerns uh, around some of the the supportive housing that exists. We have a lot of supporting housing providers who are both simultaneously the landlord. And the, the support, you know, they, they have support people, social workers on staff. And so, uh, people, you know, there's a lot of conflict in, in those kind of housing spaces and people are, are evicted quite a bit without, you know, sometimes without access to, to representation. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's very common, you know, people are also very precariously housed. So, you know, people, couch surf they they live in houses that aren't covered by any any legislation right rooming houses where they share a part of the part of the house with some you know the landlord or the landlord's uh, uh you know family members so you know people are just struggling to survive and hold on to housing and i think i think people don't recognize the that housing really is such an important component in terms of keeping someone stabilized and in terms of just a springboard to better things in life. You wrote a, an article to this effect in Now Magazine about how important housing is to the overall issues in society like crime rates and, you know, stability in the welfare system as a whole. Um, is there, what would your pitch be to why, you know, housing is something that we all need to look at as a society to give you know, the bare minimum to people to make sure that they can get through their day to day? Sure. I mean, I'll take off my lawyer hat and just say, you know, housing, housing really, the crux of it is, is do we want to provide people with human dignity? It, we cannot live in a society where we're okay with people being chronically homeless for decades. Uh, and so, you know, that, that for me is at the crux of it. But if I had to make a business case <laughs> and if I had to put on that hat, you know, people are destabilized when they live on the street. People are more likely to be subject to crimes, more likely to be harmed. The homicide rate is staggering and in particular for women on the street. So, you know, if we really want to ensure that people are well, if we really commit to that, then housing has to be first. Hey everyone, before we continue, a quick thank you to our exclusive sponsor, LexisNexis Canada. LexisNexis has been essential in developing the podcast with us and bringing you the content you've learned to love. For this episode, be sure to check out the links in our main page where you can visit the latest solo and small firm e-brief brought to you by LexisNexis Canada. This is an invaluable resource for solo and small firms which includes a solo spotlight interview with lawyers, 
articles, highlighting solo and small firm trends, areas of practice, newsletters, and more. In the latest eBrief, you'll see topics such as how can AI help lawyers, cloud security, and why legal marketing often falls flat. This is an essential resource brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, and we encourage you to visit the link by going to our website, robishowlaw.ca, clicking on this podcast, and you'll be able to click through to all of these links. In addition, you'll find links to practice notes and meeting wills, trusts, and estate litigation and dispute and intellectual property and technology experts. On this page, there's profiles and interviews of some of the top litigators and practitioners in this area. These interviews are fascinating and I encourage you all to go and read them. And you'll also find a link to the three-part series on wills, trusts, and estates, digital estate myths. So thank you once again to LexisNexis Canada for bringing this wonderful content and thank you for your ongoing support. And with that, back to our podcast. When you're describing what you're doing on a day-to-day, it seems like there's a lot of, obviously because it relates to every aspect of these individuals' lives. So you've got housing issues, you've got mental health issues, you've got potentially criminal issues. Um, Is this a type of special training or very unique skill set that uh, needs to be applied in this clinic? I mean, it doesn't seem like it's replicated anywhere else. Um, I think, you know, I think lawyers do, I mean, I think we are trained to a certain extent to look at the intersection between law um, at law school. And I think, you know, I think as criminal lawyers, I think there's a lot of case law that's sort of looking, that's sort of requiring us to think about the secondary consequences of uh, criminal convictions. So we, we've seen some cases around the immigration consequences that flow from a conviction. I would love to see the courts uh, expand that a little bit and look at other consequences. So for example, you know, a nine, a 90 day plus sentence will kick someone off rent geared to, to in, uh, RGI, essentially rent geared to income housing. And so I think these are the types of submissions that criminal counsel could be using and maybe do. I, I just, uh, you know, maybe they do. Uh, to to bear light on the consequences that flow from a criminal conviction. That's a really interesting point. I'm sure the courts would be sympathetic to it. From a defense lawyer's point of view, the hard part is we don't know all of these type of provincial statutes or regulations that might kick in. I mean, this is the first time I've even hearing about what you're describing right now. And, and oftentimes I imagine the clients themselves don't even know until after the fact once they, they get that notice. Um, but that's absolutely something that the courts perhaps need to be more sensitive to. Um, speaking of criminal lawyers, you know, we in the system we have in Ontario with legal aid, there's certificate lawyers and then there's staff lawyers. So you're a staff lawyer, um, and your uh, position, as I um, was suggesting, is rather unique in that you know it's very localized to one area. Um, do a lot of the people that you deal with on a day to day? have both potentially a certificate lawyer if they have criminal matters and also work with you on the staff. So what, I guess my question is, what's the difference? What are some of the um, advantages and disadvantages to each and how do they work presumably well together? Sure. So some of uh, some of the clients I work with, and in particular, provincial offenses court might have a criminal a criminal counsel through the legal aid certificate program. One of the most interesting things that I see sometimes in in provincial offenses court is is where uh, an accused will be charged 
both in the provincial offenses, under the Provincial Offenses Act and under the criminal code, flowing from the same incident. And I would argue the Kynapple principle applies. Um, unfortunately, that means that the, the courts will have to go with the more serious criminal charge. But, you know, for, and I, I guess I could give an example just so it illuminates what, what these accused are facing. So they, they might be, they might be trespassed in a store, charged for theft, and then charged for engaged in a prohibited activity. So the trespass and the engaged in the prohibited activity are regulatory offenses under the Provincial Offenses Act, but then they've also been charged with the theft. So I, I think, and I've been successful in arguing that those individuals should, should not, you know, be charged twice right. for the right. same from what you're describing especially as it relates to the absentee trials the more quote serious case of the theft under i as a criminal lawyer know that it's something you hardly ever go to jail for they're often almost always diverted yet someone who doesn't show up for the trespass to property act and engage in unlawful activity could face more serious sanctions than the quote more serious one in criminal court back to your question regarding you know an individual having you know multiple lawyers i think you know, my time in Turkey really taught me a lot about solidarity and collaboration and cohesion. And, you know, when when lawyers are under threat, and we see this around the world, I mean, lawyers are, gal you know, galvanizing and in countries where, you know, there's a real solidarity, um, it, lawyers will band together. And, and when I came back to law school, there was a bit of a culture shock for me in the sense that, you know, I found our profession to be so competitive. And I, you know, I probably spent my formative years in my 20s working in Turkey with a group of individuals and lawyers who were so committed to each other and so committed to each other's safety and security. And um, I try to replicate that. I do try to replicate that with, you know, within my own circle of colleagues and with whomever I work with, because I think our clients fare much better when we collaborate. Uh, when we, you know, when we reach out and we are, we do really adopt a siloed approach in terms of how we see our clients and their lives. You know, we haven't talked about the, the, the intersection between family law and criminal, but there are huge, you know, there are major, um, there are major intersections. One, one decision in the criminal courts will cascade. Um, and so this, this is our, the lives of our clients. This is how they're experiencing their criminal, their, their criminal problems or family law problems. We see them as specific issues related to a specific area of law, but that is just not simply how they're living their lives. And, you know, when clients come to see me, they're like, they don't parcel it out. They don't say to me, well, Amy, this is my criminal law issue and this is my family law issue. You, you do have to sort through and wade through those things. And I think our clients are served better and we're better lawyers when we decide, when we actually collaborate with each other and we, we don't compete. Do you have access to the resources of referrals? Uh, so when someone comes to you with a bundle of problems of criminal f family immigration and they're also being evicted, how do you triage that? Sure. I mean, I am lucky in the sense that I do work within the legal aid system. So I do have access to resources, supports, colleagues who work in multiple areas of law. And I do, and I will triage that. But it's not just here, go see this person. I, you know, I usually try to make a warm referral and ensure that that person has an appointment, ensure that they're going to get there. Um, and if necessary, continue to work collaboratively, you know, with that lawyer who's decided to take on that client for another issue. So from a practical point of view, just so people have an understanding, imagine this fictitious person, they come to you and they've got these problems. What happens to them? 
from from sitting down with you um it may not what happens in court but but how do they navigate the system or can they well i mean that's a good question i don't think the systems are set up necessarily to 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 allow our clients. And when I say our clients, I'm specifically talking, talking about a subset of clients, clients who, who are on the street, clients who are managing disabilities, whether or not they be psychiatric, you know, addictions issues. Our, our, our justice system, our health systems are not set up to really, to really meet the needs of those individuals. So it is a huge, huge, uh, struggle for them just to make it through. One of the most frustrating parts of my work and is that, you know, I, at the end of the day, I do feel like I've, you know, assisted an individual to to address their issue, to to make an informed decision based upon legal advice about what they need to do next. And so there's immediate gratification in terms of if that work. But one of the things, and I think throughout my career that I've that I've had issues with is how do you then turn that into systemic change? Because and I don't know if you feel this as well as a criminal lawyer, but seeing the same cases, and I think drug drug charges are the most frustrating for me, uh, you know, seeing the same cases over and over again, but not actually having any any meaningful legislative change, not having any meaningful um, law reform around these issues. So it you know it's difficult to to balance the individual work when the systemic inadequacies are so glaring on a day-to-day basis. Do you see it getting better? Has it, over the past 10 years, for example, have you seen improvements that you've either been part of or just, you know, witnessed? Well, I, I, you know, sometimes the law is, is slow to catch up to, to social change. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, I was very happy with the insight decision at the Supreme Court regarding safe injection and safe consumption sites. Um, we do have safe injection sites in Toronto now. And so we have, I, you know, I'm seeing some changes, quite frankly, you know, at, at in the healthcare sector that could be also replicated in, in the legal system. But, and so I think, you know, I'm hopeful that that, we'll, that we might see some changes in that area, but I haven't seen them yet. So, well, to be honest, <laughs> I was I was setting you up for a humble brag because you were also um, very involved in the Ashley Smith inquest, and what we saw was a lot of positive changes come from that with relation to segregation. Um, what what happened there? I mean, not 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 what happened. We all know what happened. But your role um, was through uh, Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Um, what were some of the lessons you took from that inquest? Sure. Um, so I was very fortunate to to be at the CCLA at the time when they were granted standing at the Ashley Smith inquest. And their role was to really uh, shine light on the civil liberties issues in prisons as it related to the inquest. So, there, you know, the organization had a very specific mandate and a very specific role. I... Being part of the inquest and, and the, certainly the media focus on Ashley Smith's story, uh, I thought was, was really important. I don't think many individuals understand what it's like to be in prison. I think people, you know, would be shocked to know that there are more people, unfortunately, in segregation or segregation-like conditions now than there were at the time that Ashley Smith served her, her, her sentence. So there, there's much value in, in terms of inquests and inquiries as well in terms of shining light on, on, you know, violations on what, what it's like to be in prison. So that for me was really, I mean, it was really important to see that her story was told. 
we're not there yet in terms of, of solitary confinement. We're not there yet. Um, we are seeing, and, and you know, the CCLA has, has had to again engage in litigation around this issue with, uh, with, uh, Canadian Association for Elizabeth Fry uh, societies and as well the BCCLA and John Howard have, have continued to have had to litigate, litigate. So in retrospect, the you know the inquest was so important in terms of understanding her story and in terms of bringing to light just uh, how horrendous her experience was in 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 the federal system. But we're still we're still we're still fighting, and I you know years later to ensure that there's actual concrete changes. So Amy, people have described you, and I can see that as a very happy person. But you know, on a day to day, it seems like there's a lot of um, pretty serious issues here, and you know, especially from your time of dealing with human rights, uh, how do you stay positive? How do you get through the day? And, you know, how do you just get up in the morning some days? Because I think this is something, you know, a lot of lawyers struggle with is when you're constantly hit with, you know, uh, tragedy and clients who are needing you and witnessing things that sometimes are beyond your control, um, how do you carry on? You know, I think essentially, I, I really recognize that I'm of no use to anyone if I'm not if I'm not healthy, if I'm not happy, if I'm not caring for myself. Um, many of your guests have talked about, you know, having a life outside of law, and I think that's really important. I'm a mom, you know, I try to be a good friend to the people who I, you know, who are in my life. And I don't I don't see myself as, you know, I see myself as a lawyer, but it's such a it's such a small part of who I really am. And I think that has helped me. Um, to to sort of balance my life in terms of you know leaving it all at the office. I'm not saying I always do, but you know part of part of it is just recognizing that I will be of no use if I'm not as well. You know, taking care of myself. So, what does a great day look like for you then? I'm sure it has a little bit of you know um, drama and going through everything that you have to at work, but. Well, I joke because I have a toddler, so I, I feel like a superhero before I've even got to work, right. right? Like if I get the kids off to school and everyone's happy and fed and, and we're all good, then I'm already way ahead of the game. The hard part's done, yeah. Um, but, you know, I do see a lot of sadness. I, you know, I, I, you must know, you, you get, you know, you do hear your client stories. You do, un, you know, you do hear snippets of their lives. You understand, you know, on some cases where, why they are, where they're at, why they've done what they've done. Um, but, you know, my clients are also very grateful and very genuine and very authentic and very, very, I think for the most part, you might have to ask some of them, but for the most part, I think they're very happy to, to have been heard and people will come back. It's, it's, it's rare, but people do get out of the, you know, get out of the system and people do come back and, and say thank you. And those are meaningful for me. Those, those moments are very meaningful. So back to my question, what does that great day look like? Sure. Well, I mean, if I'm able to see everyone that needs to be seen, I feel like I, I've accomplished something. Um, I, if I, you know, I think, you know, some days are more hectic and I have to turn people away. A good day is when I'm able to see everyone and, and really address what they, what they need that day. A lot of what I do, especially in the community, not so much in the court is, is really responding to client crises. You know, people have missed court. There might be warrants out for them. Um, you know, 
lots going on and, and it's responding to their needs. And, and at the end of the day, if I've, if I've been able to do that, I feel like it's been a good day. One of the hardest things that younger lawyers struggle with is client management and especially client management with people with mental health or other things going on in your life. What are some of the, the tips that you've learned to help you manage people um, with setting expectations or whatever it may be? Sure. I mean, I, I see, I see client management and in particular when you're working with individuals who, who have, you know, disabilities and who manage, you know, maybe multiple disabilities, uh, you really have to be client focused. And for me, the upfront work with the client is ensuring that they're informed of all of their uh, options. And that can take a long time and it can take different approaches with it, with clients. I mean, most clients who manage disabilities will tell you what their accommodation needs are. Sometimes they won't, but most of the times they will. And so for me, having, you know, addressing those issues is really important. You don't want someone later on saying it was, I didn't make a plea. It wasn't informed. My lawyer didn't tell me this. Right. And so, you know, having really frank discussions and very real discussions with clients about about what they can expect at trial, what they can expect, if not trial, through a diversion program, whatever it is, that the upfront work for me is the hardest work. Because once I know and once I'm confident that my client is has instructed me, and maybe I don't agree with the instruction I'm taking, but once I'm confident that that is the decision that they've made, they've made so on good counsel, they have all of the, the factors that they need to make that decision, then I feel confident to go with it and roll with it. So for me, the upfront work in terms of client management and client expectation is important. I, you know, I think it's also important to set boundaries with clients. And so my clients know I, I have a life. I leave at the end of the day, they see me, I'm rushing to get to the daycare, you know, and I'm, I'm human too. Right. And, and they understand that and they will ask, Oh, Hey, how, you know, how did you make it to daycare? And I, you know, and, and they'll ask those questions. And I think, you know, being a bit human with your, with clients they're you know, I feel very privileged that people tell me, talk to me about their life histories and their stories and impart upon me, you know, their their life histories really and so i think being human with with our clients is also a really important strategy for client management so moving into a very uh, another very human uh, element and that is uh, persuasion and advocacy uh, what are some of the essential tips that you've come to learn advocating for your clients in court or through tribunals um well i think you know i do do a lot of negotiation and so, you know, I think negotiation is really important. I think understanding the emotional subtext for, for whether or not it's a, you know, if it's a prosecutor or a justice of the peace or a judge, what is going on and thinking about what is going on for them in terms of the factors they need to make and what they need to make the decision that you want, you know, for your client ultimately. You know, I think I did a lot of mooting in law school and, you know, I was told, that I was too emotional. I was told, you know, you need to tone it down, you know, stop waving your hands. Yeah, probably pretty gendered advice, I'll have to say. But the reality is, is I would say to anyone, just be, just be you. There, you can't fake, you, know, you can't fake things, right? You have to be, you have to be who you are and you have to own that. And ultimately, I think you have to remind yourself a lot of what you're doing is a conversation. 
Right. Yeah, I think that's that's excellent advice because if you're not authentic, no one's buying it. Exactly. All right. So um, one thing that would surprise people about yourself that that they wouldn't they wouldn't think you know your clients coming in and you say by the way I happen to have this in my briefcase or I happen to do this as a hobby. Oh, <laughs> well. Um, I get, I mean I'm a runner. I do a lot of sports. Um, you know, when I can, I kayak. Kayak. Uh, yeah. So that's a really unique yeah. sport. Whitewater or sea kayaking? Uh, sea kayaking. In Toronto? Uh, in Toronto. Good. I used to do it a lot more, I think, before kids. I I, I started the first sea kayaking club in Turkey, actually. And and uh, it was me and 13 men. <laughs> and we did a cross-Mediterranean uh, t- trip. <laughs> Wow, how cool it was, was that? It was awesome. But, so you, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you know how to roll a kayak? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the best answer I've got to that question so far. <laughs> if you could see one broad change happen, you know, if you had the power to do that, what would you like to be able to achieve um, either, you know, just by snapping your fingers and making it happen uh, for your day to day or somehow you're given more power? Can I have two? <laughs> yes. Three um, if you want, in fact. Since sure. Isn't that the standard right? for your wishes? <laughs> well, I mean, I have many more than three. But, you know, one of the answers that I'll provide you with, I think, is is that I would like to see more people with lived experience and more people with real, real knowledge um, of what's happening, whether or not it's in prisons, whether or not it's on the street, actually being in positions where they're making decisions. And not just token, you know, consultations but actually um directing change throughout my own career i've always i've had such a hard time balancing the systemic advocacy and versus you know the individual advocacy but i think that tension wouldn't exist if actually more individuals with lived experiences were the ones who were actually you know making laws uh implementing changes so that's a big lofty uh more you know theoretical wish um, I would love to see the decriminalization of, of, of drugs uh, in, in Canadian society. I think we're really, you know, you, we're really seeing a disconnect between healthcare, safe injection sites, and, and we know what those kind of sites, the services they provide, we know that they make our communities safer and not just the people that use them, but you know, the, our community safer, but you know, there's a real disconnect because we're still seeing possession charges and we still see police officers laying charges, uh, for people who use those services going, you know, in and out. So, uh, I'd, I'd like to see some real changes with relation to, to drug, drug laws in, in our, in our country. You know, I would love to see, I would love to see the, the city and Canada address the homeless crisis. I think the homelessness destabilizes not only the people on the streets, but it destabilizes our entire uh, nation. And I was at, I was actually at city council last year with my baby <laughs> when I was on mat leave. And I, you know, I was propelled to go because my, my, well, then my seven-year-old, uh, you know, kept asking me, how is it possible that, that these people are living on the street? And, you know, that's a really important question. We, I think we all need to ask ourselves, how is it possible that we allow this as a society? Well, thank you for sharing your lived experience and authenticity. I really appreciate that. That's Amy Slotek. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs>